Welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal on the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Manrat, and today on Streams of Progress, I'm joined by Kareem Hello founder and CEO of ProTenders. During the discussion, we covered his entrepreneurial journey from working at Ericsson to launching ProTenders and the grander vision he has as they continue to scale up. So join us as we dive into the conversation. So today we're sitting down with Karim Halal, the CEO and founder of ProTenders, and they are the LinkedIn of construction. We'll get into what that means in more detail. Thank you for being on the show, Karim. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And before we get into what ProTenders is, what you guys are doing, and if you can tell me a bit about your background. Sure. So I'm one of those kids that grew up in, uh, in the UAE early on. So I, grew, I, was, I came here when I was uh, three days old, pretty much, uh, from Lebanon. Uh, my dad was uh, an architect. Uh, came here in 68, a couple of back and trip. It was supposed to be a one-month trip, ended up being a 40-year adventure. So came here, I was born since 76, came here three days old, um, in a time where there was literally nothing in, in Abu Dhabi. I um, spent 17 years here, I mean, the whole typical thing. 17 years old, I finished school, and there was no universities back then, so I had to go somewhere. And so since we were studying French, uh, we went to, it was either France or Canada. So we went to Canada, the usual thing. Spent uh, 13 years there studying, working, uh, getting my MBA, and then basically I came back here for personal reasons um, in 2006. And when you came back, did you go into the family business? Is that Hillel and Partners? Yeah, so what actually happened was that uh, my dad passed away in 2006, unexpectedly. So I had already had one brother that was here that had been in the business for 10 years. So I guess two of us decided to come back and help with the uh, with the business. Out of four brothers, I'm the only one who's not an architect, really, so or, or construction-related industry. So I ended up doing more of the uh, management side of things, so the strategy, the business development, the, uh, the processes. And your family business was an architecture firm? Yeah, yeah. so at some point it was, one, it was actually one of the biggest uh, architecture firms in Abu Dhabi. Uh, my dad was very much of an Abu Dhabi guy in times where he was, because, I mean, back then it was much more of a rivalry between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And so he was always there, and in Abu Dhabi, it was one of the biggest ones uh, back in the days. And you were saying your siblings, they all went into architecture? I mean, you know you how were... it is, right? Architect, I mean, you and your Lebanese family, you can do whatever you want, as long as it's engineering, doctor, or lawyer. Pick, yeah? So we all went somehow into engineering. I went to electrical engineering, and my brothers went more into civil, uh, mechanical, and architecture. And eventually you went towards IT? So my thing was always IT, yeah? So even from the day I was young, I remember my parents' biggest shock was that whenever they would buy me something, I would always break it apart and try and see how it worked. So I've been in computers since I was a kid, yeah? We, we got one of the first PCs in, in Abu Dhabi. I was, right away, I broke it apart, see how it worked. Reverse engineering. Completely, yeah? And so, yeah, I was always more in IT, and I was a bit more of a geek when I was growing up. And so when I finished, when I went to university first, I went to McGill, did my computer science. Hated it, absolutely hated it. Then went more into engineering. Uh, yeah, I did that for four years. Didn't like it anymore, but at least it was more about, uh, about learning to learn, learning to, to learn fast. So did that, and then went to Ericsson basically for, for six years, where started off as a tester, bit of a hacker to make sure the thing they were developing was working well. And then I basically became a product or project manager for them. And so the cool thing about Ericsson back in the days was that they were, so even now, they're running, they, the way they work is by departments, and every department is completely independent. Right. So our department back in the days was the one that created something called MMS, which was the multimedia version of SMS. 
And so what my job was first to try and break it. But two, we then went on a, on a six-year cycle where whenever there was a new release, we would go to a customer site somewhere in the world and spend six months testing it with them, installing it with them, making sure it works and rolling it out. Yeah. So it was really six years of traveling to customer sites, spending uh, yeah six months, six, six, six to nine months at the customer site, making sure the whole thing worked. Um, and then so we did this for about six years. Um, and then, yeah, then I did my MBA and then I came back. So when you say you break it, does that mean like quality assurance or were you trying to like push it to its limit? What, what well, exactly if, it's supposed to do, if it's supposed to do X, try and do a Y, Z, A, B, C. Just try, try and find whatever way you can to make it not work anymore. Um, whether it's by doing the wrong combinations, doing the wrong codes, doing the wrong procedures, like really making sure that the system works the way it's supposed to work. And these are systems that are pretty expensive. They're systems that are very complicated. So there's a lot of ways you can attack a system, making sure you don't have access to the wrong information, making sure that things are private, making sure that the right messages go out to the right people. Like all these kind of things across a variety of different phones, right? Um, so all of this, those were things that we were spent yeah, a lot of hours trying to have fun with and try and, try and break. Everything you just explained, it seems like there's a lot of learning going on. Is there a specific learning you think during your time with Ericsson that you've actually applied to your startup life now? Throughout my life, one of the good things and bad things, I'm very, I'm very dyslexic. And so I've always had a very bad time with memory things, with, with learning things. So that, and I'm also being also the third kid of a family, so I'm very undisciplined. And so, which meant that I was never that good in school, uh, but I was always great at figuring things out by myself, always. And I was always very good at, at uh, getting, uh, figuring things out in a very fast way. Uh, so for example, when I remember when I was in university, I used to go to the first class of the semester, would disappear for like two or three months, come back after, and then relearn all of the things that they had learned in three months, like a week before the exams. So I was always a bit of this learn by myself kind of mode, which is now something that I actually enjoy quite a bit. And this is actually also I became very good at my job at Ericsson. Because there was no rule books. It's pretty much do whatever you have to do, be creative and to how you can solve that problem or how you can try and break it. So being a bit of a, not a rebel, but being a bit of a creative thinker in a sense or a quick learner helped me throughout my career. So was it a bit of self-management at Ericsson? You don't have a manager? It was, again, very startup-y in a way that it worked. It was very informal the way it worked. Um, and especially our, our office in Montreal was known as being the cowboy uh, office in Ericsson. So it was always much more of entrepreneur kind of culture. And so again, we were a team of about 20, 25 people and we had to do this whole big project. So there wasn't that much provision. There wasn't that much uh, control as to how you did things as long as the work got done. So don't get me wrong, we worked a lot. I mean, there was a lot of late nights. There was a lot of sleepless nights. There was a lot of trying to make things work. It always reinforced the, the mentality of think outside the box. There is no way of doing things. Just try and figure out a way to make it happen. That, yeah, that, that works. And there's no specific right way of doing it. There you is no right way. find a way. There is no right way, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll give you an example. One day we were at a, at a customer site in, uh, in Brazil. Actually, two examples. One day we were at a customer site in Brazil, and uh, one of the boxes that we had wasn't working. And so I remember we had spent three or four days trying to get it to work the official way, and it just wasn't working. And it was one of those big, uh, big routers, uh, anyway, that we had to install. And so I remember at some point, everybody left the office. And so I was stuck trying to fix it. It was at night. And so I actually opened up the box, the actual server, server box. And actually, it was a, a cable that was disconnected. Okay? 
So I just plugged it back in, very simple fix, but something that we would have otherwise had to wait two weeks to have somebody from the company come over and fix it. Yeah, so that was one of the things. So another example that we had is we had one of the releases that we had done that was just not working. So we were at a customer site in Germany and things were just not working whatsoever. We had plugged everything in. It was, it was three racks of servers, full, full, fully, fully equipped. Um, and we had a deadline to get it launched or we would face a severe penalties. And so everything we tried, everything we, we worked wouldn't work. It just something wouldn't work in the system. And so we had the people from Canada that were there, people from, from, from uh, the team in Germany that was there. We just couldn't figure out what it was. And I remember we spent the last three nights working day and night, literally on it, um, couldn't get it fixed. And the last night before they came in at seven in the morning to try, start doing testing, uh, I said, you know what, let me just recable the whole thing. And so it was one of those situations where basically one cable was badly placed. And so by pure luck, we ended up recabling the whole thing. And yeah, half an hour before they came in, the system started working. Just one of those things, yeah, where there is no, like you have to be creative. You have to find, you have to get it to work, whatever, however you can. So let's go back to, you got your MBA. Yeah. How come you didn't go back to Ericsson? Basically what happened was after six years in Ericsson, I was kind of fed up with the whole the whole corporate culture in a sense that, so what I just told you now about this thing where we saved, uh, I mean, this big project, yeah. it was a massive penalty. It was a, a big, pro- big thing. And then we pretty much saved multiple millions of dollars of penalties. Um, and literally the thank you got was thank you. Like no pay raise. Literal thank you. Uh, thank you. No pay raise, no bonuses, nothing. And like, if you're going to work your, your butt off for, for a company, what's the point? Like if you don't get thanked when you actually do something much more than what you're supposed to be doing, I mean, there's, there's no point, right? So this is where I started doing my MBA. It was to go into more entrepreneurship. Um, so I did my MBA and it, the goal was never to go back to Ericsson. It was really more to start my own thing in Canada. Um, and then, yeah, my dad passed away a couple of months after, so I came back here. Let's go into pro tenders. Before we get into what you guys are doing, can you summarize what pro tenders is and what you guys offer? Sure. So basically what it is is, is, is three things. I mean, I think to understand more what it is, I should tell you how we started it. Yeah. yeah. So when I was working at my dad's company, we were doing very well. A lot of projects in, in design. It was one of the boom years. So a lot of thing in design, doing very well. The problem that we ever had, though, was how do you get it tendered out? How do you get prices for the project? So once the project is designed, you have to go and tender. And tender back in the days was, and even still today is very often, paper. It's paper-based. And so you had to basically print tens of thousands of pages of documents, sign them, each one of them, stamp them, ship them, or drive them to wherever you had to drop them. Uh, whenever there was revisions of documents, you had to reprint the whole thing, restamp the whole thing, redeliver it. So it was just a complete mess. Um, whenever there were bidders that were invited, you had to go and print or duplicate all of these things, ship them over. So it was really very, very paper intensive. And so when we tried, as, as part of my job, trying to figure out ways to do things better, um, we looked at different solutions. There was literally nothing out there that made sense. There was either the big Oracle systems that were not meant for tendering. They were meant for buying paper and chairs and like procurement. Um, or you had to basically rely on paper and pen or at best uh, FTP sites. Um, that was a thing back then. And so we started developing this, this thing for us internally. It was wouldn't, it, it has to be a better way. So we started developing ourselves. It, it worked quite kind of well. It actually made the process much easier. Uh, and then we spin out as a separate company. 
So the first thing we did was really building a system to make the process of communicating documents between different parties much easier. In a sense, Dropbox, but for, 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 for architecture. Uh, and then we add on top of that a bidding module so people can actually bid online. And so that will give you much better analysis uh, of the different prices and everything else. And then what happened is that the crisis hit, right? So we went through three years of this valley of death where nothing was happening. Uh, there was no tenders being issued out. There is no projects being tendered out. There was literally nothing happening. Um, however, a couple of things happened that actually saved us. Uh, one is that the companies that were still somewhat developing were building more and more outside of the Middle East. And so the question that we're asking us is, can you help us you know, find people? Right? We, don't know, we, know who, we know who to work with in Dubai or in Abu Dhabi because we've been here for 25 years. But now we go to Egypt, we go to Lebanon, we have no idea who to contact. So can you help us find people? And the second thing was the, the, the actual suppliers and contractors who were, very, who were coming to us and telling us, well, listen, I know that you guys are close to developers, so can you tell us who has projects so we can bid on them? So the much bigger opportunity became, well, not so much tendering, but really more how do you connect people? And this is where the connection with LinkedIn happened because LinkedIn, nobody knows you unless they know you, right? So, but, but, so LinkedIn is used because you want to find people based on their skills, their competences, their education, their their they work and so on and so forth. Once they've met you, I mean, you can, uh, LinkedIn kind of is not that important anymore. It's still used if you want to keep track of people, like what's happening afterwards. Um, construction is the same way. Nobody really cares about company XYZ unless they know you. Um, and so typically it's an industry where people care a lot about what you've done. Like who designed Bush Khalifa? Who did the engineering for the new museum of the future? The, the project base is much more important than the company base. And so that was something that was very hard to find. And this is where, how can people find partners? And so we ended up basically building up a, a, a social network, in a sense, uh, for construction, which is all about project-based. So you can find people based on what they've done in projects. Show me the biggest developer or the biggest architect of four-star hotels in Dubai or in Morocco that has experience designing that kind of hotel, this kind of people, and this kind of areas, and these kind of things. And so that really kickstarted the whole new growth phase, right? Because whereas before it was a very much of a enterprise sales cycle that was very long and very hard to sell, this was just something that people just massively wanted. And so they were starting to be signed up in, a, in a quite a, a rapid pace. Um, and from everything happened from there. So once we did this, then suppliers came on board and asked us if, you could add, if we could add a marketplace, right? If can we add a way for us to list our products, which we did. And so, and then what happened after is that there was so much data being put into the system in terms of projects, um, that we were able to actually resell information about what's going on in the market. So show me all the ongoing four-star hotels being designed today in Dubai that match the specification and don't currently have a supplier of lighting, right? Show me where the guys in this company that should be talking to for me to be able to sell my lights to these guys, right? So it became a, 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 a great way for anybody in the industry to connect, collaborate, find leads, and then bid on projects eventually. So every iteration or every evolution of your product was based off some problem or some demand that was actually there. Well, I mean, the thing where I always tell all of our customers that we go to, or every potential customer, is that the system, everything that's in the system from A to Z pretty much is, is, the, is, the, is the consequence of a customer asking us a question. None of that is my ideas. I mean, I, my, my only idea was, let's do a tendering engine. Everything else has been literally discussions that we have with customers, their suggestions, their ideas, their feedback. So we've always been very close to our customers and the system has always grown accordingly. Um, and so, yeah, it's, all of it is about answering specific needs they have. A lot of 
founders have certain vision. I want this product and they start building out these features that either there's no real demand or no product market fit. In your case, you've actually listened to the customers, found their pain points and developed something along those lines and evolved yeah. your own product offering based uh, off that. I mean, I would say even more, every time, every time I thought I had the answer and we developed it, we, we didn't go anywhere. So every time I say, no, this is this would be a great feature to have and we launched it, nobody ever used it. So now I actually don't, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't suggest anything new anymore. <laughs> Very interesting. So I just want to rewind to, that's how the features came about. But how did the actual building of the product come about? I mean, was it originally an internal project that shifted to a spinoff? And did the team transition over or did you have to build out a team on your own? Okay, good question. So basically what it was is, is um, when the idea came about, I, I, I called one of my friends back in Montreal. Uh, to help me develop it because I'm not I mean I understand tech but I'm not a developer I can't program um, and so I called him in uh, he spent a couple of months so I sold him I sold him on the idea he wanted help so we he spent a couple of months building up the initial prototype um, and then we uh, hired a company here in Dubai called I forgot uh, anyway I hired a company here in Dubai to develop it for us um, and then they took six months instead of taking two months they were supposed to take. Um, and it wasn't really going anywhere. So what we ended up doing is that there, the, the, the developer retook it, rebuilt it from scratch. Your, your friend. Yeah, our friend. Uh, took it over from scratch and rebuilt it from scratch uh, around three, it took him about three months to rebuild it from scratch. Oh. We're using something called Ruby on Rails, oh, which okay. back in the days was still pre-launch. So it was still 0.9 or 0.8. That was because it was supposed to be the fast way of doing, you know, websites. Um, but it meant that there wasn't a lot of people that knew what it was, right? So he learned it, he built it, he launched it. Um, we did that. Um, first, it was so for the first couple of projects, it was internal. But then very quickly, we got the attention of one of our big uh, first customers, ADCB. And then they picked it up for their own project. So we did a couple of tests with them and they liked it. And then when we spun it out into a separate business. How has the growth been? You launched and then there was that recessionary. Yeah. So how, how has it been for you over up to now? Sure. So the first two years were great. I mean, we were making money. We were at profit from day one. We had, we were, everybody that wanted to be on the platform had to pay. So it was, it was great. It was heaven. And I actually thought this was going to be easy, right? Um, that was from 2010, 2012. Yeah. From, and so what happened is when things were going well, um, the problem we had with the business was that the platform was growing at a very fast pace, but so was Ruby and Rails language. And so we were spending more and more time trying to fix the changes in the code than developing new features in a sense. And so what we ended up deciding was that in 2013, sorry, 2012, we would restart development. We would basically rebuild it. Because it was from scratch, from scratch, a separate yeah, platform. From scratch. Because it was becoming more and more difficult to maintain the existing code. And so we ended up actually restarting the development in 2012. Um, and it was supposed to be a five-month program, a five-month effort. It ended up taking us two years. Uh, at the same time, what happened was that, um, was that the crisis hit. So again, there was no new projects. So between 2012 and 2014, again, there were really nothing happening. So you, we were stuck in the situation where we had to keep on working with the customers that we already had because all of their works were going through us. Um, so it was very critical projects. At the same time, we'd, we're spending a lot of money on the redevelopment, which we couldn't give up because, I mean, that was the way to go. That's the future. Uh, exactly. 
And at the same time, there wasn't really any growth opportunities because at that time it was extremely difficult to go somewhere else. Like if you're, unless you were VC backed, which there were no VCs back then, you couldn't go to Qatar, you couldn't go to Saudi, so you couldn't go anywhere else. So we were stuck in this kind of a really bad place uh, for about two years um, where literally nothing was happening. We were losing money every month and, and yeah, it was really completely flat curve. On top of that, most of the customers that we had signed up went bankrupt. So it was a crisis where a lot of companies had signed up and there were no projects and everybody was getting, was getting out of the business. So there was less and less customers paying. So it was a really hard situation to actually just keep afloat, right? Um, and again, the only thing that made us... And so we tried a lot of things. We tried partnerships. We tried to, do, um, to go outside different regions. It didn't work very well. We ended up doing a partnership with... So we had approached uh, the Zawiyas and the Meads of the day um, for a potential collaboration with them. And didn't go anywhere for different reasons. And so, yeah, really hard place. And so in 2014, I decided to, in a sense, give it up um, because it, was, it wasn't going anywhere. And so at that time, uh, I, was, I moved back to Canada. And exact same time, Zaya, which had been bought by Thompson Reuters, called us up. And they said, well, listen, now we're, we've been acquired by Thompson Reuters. We want to, we want to find a way to work with you. Um, and so we did, we went back, came back, did a partnership with them. They took it over and they were supposed to launch it across all Middle East, Africa and Russia. All right. So it was like, you know what? My, my, my problems are over. We're done. That's it. We're, we're gold. So you actually technically semi-exited at that time? I mean, we or? pretty much put it, put it on hold. Yeah. It was running, but there was nothing new happening. It was basically just, just, uh, just on, yeah, just on uh, life support. It was running. It was, it was there, but there was really no, nothing happening on it. Thompson comes in, they pick it up, they have this massive plan of launching it and crossing all regions. And then what happened was that, unfortunately, it kind of got dispersed into the corporate world. And so the people that were there championing it weren't there anymore. So we were stuck with one sales guy and that was it. So the massive plans of them rolling across the region didn't go anywhere. We lost another year. And so in 2015 is when I picked it up again. So you know what? We're done. I'm going to come back, give them another shot. Uh, came back, took it over again. And this is when we started redoing all the development for the LinkedIn side of things and the profiles and, and, and that kind of stuff. Based on what a customer said. Yeah, exactly. Or what a client said already. Yeah. Exactly. And this is when the growth really started again. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I, I did not know that background. Yeah, nobody knows. <laughs> I think now they do. Now they, now they will, yeah. So I want to see what your take is on the actual construction industry in terms of where you've seen it being and where do you see it going now? Sure. So it's an industry which is very cyclical. Yeah. I mean, I guess you've noticed being in Dubai, there's always a boom and a bust. Um, when, the, uh, when, it, when the boom happened, again, nothing happened at all. It re-picked up again quite a bit in 2014 um, because of the Expo 2020. And it seems, unfortunately, we're back in the same situation as before where there's been an oversupply. They've overbuilt again. Um, and at the same time, because everything else happening in the world, there's less people in the region. So there's oversupply, less demand. Um, so there's going to be some problems coming up in the next couple of months or next couple of, in the short future, um, about cash flows. So a lot of companies are suffering because of lack of cash flows, not getting paid, paying, getting paid late. And so that's creating a lot of problems in the industry. Um, at the same time, there's new things happening in other countries, Saudi Arabia. Um, so I think in general, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an understanding that things have to change. Um, but again, the country is mostly built, right? There's not that much more to build anymore. 
And there is always going to be something, but not the level as, be, as before. So a lot of the companies that have come here and tried to do things are going to have to either go a lot more streamlined uh, or find new ways to expand, right? Which is where we come in. In a sense that we actually save them a lot of extra costs. We help them identify the right opportunities to work with. And so there's more and more of a need for companies to become a lot more efficient. And we see that, especially now in the last couple of years, with, this, with the boom of construction tech. So most of the big corporate companies, most of the big corporate uh, contractors, sorry, have all now started investing in companies that will make their lives easier, that will help them build better, faster, cheaper, right? So that is a big wave happening. It started off in the States and now it's trickling here. Uh, it's also very big in, in Europe. And so finally here it's becoming the point where also construction tech is something which is actively looked at. We also help, however, more of the business side of things, right? So construction tech is typically more on the construction side itself. How do you make construction itself more efficient? We're before where if you're basically trying to find projects, we'll help you. We'll, we're basically your best bet to find projects. So basically we're the platform that helps companies uh, figure out the best deals to go after because they know who the, comp- who the companies are, what the track record is, and so on and so forth. Yeah? There's a bit of proof in terms of that they've executed these well, projects. Exactly, exactly. What you guys are also doing is providing a bit of transparency. Don't use that word. No? <laughs> Don't use that word. No? Nope. We're making construction more efficient. Okay. Let's put it that way. Okay. I mean, transparency is something that's a bit hard to explain because, again, it's an industry which is known for lack of transparency. Yeah. yeah. And so whenever you mention that word, people kind of shy away from it. We're just making the process smoother, more efficient, and using data to help you make decisions faster. You can make better decisions. Better decisions. Yeah. yeah. What's in the works? In 2018, 2019, what are you hoping to achieve or do you have any bigger ambition? Sure. So basically what's been happening in the last year and a half is that we've been growing this hawkish growth. Um, this is with no marketing whatsoever, with literally no budget because we were not funded so far. And so we now get over a thousand new companies signing up a month from over 105 countries. Right. And this is, again, pure word of mouth, pure, basically, some key things that we did. And so the biggest problem we've had over last year was we were basically growing too fast compared to our team. And so we were not being able to address that massive flood of people coming in. Um, because, again, B2B is different from B2C. B2B, you've got to have sales guys. You've got to be able to clo- to pitch. you got to do the demos. You, then you got to have the post sales. So the operation you kind of need to be able to do that is, is quite bigger than if it was the B2C. So now our biggest challenge now is to actually solve that problem, right? So hence the funding you mentioned before. Uh, but the second thing we're doing on a product, more of a product point of view is, is now that we have so much data coming in into the system and we're becoming, in a sense, the, 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 the largest um, database of construction that's all linked together in a sense that we're the only ones to have a rich database of projects, companies, people, products, and prices all together. And so the question that we're trying to ask ourselves is, well, how do you use that to make construction, again, more efficient, right? Um, a lot of that is going to be to start using data to provide, again, better better information. What's the actual price today of cement in Dubai? Who are the companies that have this kind of rating for the kind of projects? Who are the companies that have the best experience doing these kind of projects? So using this data to really provide intelligence, you really couldn't get otherwise before. And it becomes even more important are you starting to build more and more outside, right? So you might know the prices internally here in the country because you've been here for 25 years. But if you're building in Riyadh or in Europe, how does that affect your pricing? So where we want to start getting the next, within the next 12 months is, again, three things, three main questions. One is, what is there a lack of where? 
because we know every single building is coming up. We know what's inside of a building. We know what's the compo- and what's the stage of construction. We can tell you, well, this area here has a lack of four-star hotels or has a lack of schools or has a lack of one-bedroom apartments, right? The second thing we can tell you is, based on your budget, based on what you're trying to do in this particular area, who are the companies that have the best experience designing, engineering, supplying, building, or whatever else, that particular project, right? So we can help you reduce your risk by being able to tell you who to work with. And the third thing is mining all of our pricing information to tell you, well, basically, if you're trying to build a four-star hotel of a, let's say, three basements and and, uh, and uh, 10 floors, the average price you'll be paying for furnishings is going to be 5% of the overpriced. The, the pricing for foundation is going to be 4%, whatever else it is. And so using this data to really answer questions that would be typically very hard to do. That's really the next wave of what we're trying to build. So imagine that's a lot of data science that's going to be applied to... There's a lot of it, yeah. So we're, we're, I mean, you guys have a lot of data. So this is the thing, yeah. We've, we've so far built the data collection machines, basically, in a sense. And people want to give us data because the more data they give, they give us, the better... It works for them. So the way the profiles work is the more data they give us, the more they get visible, the more updates they do, the more they get visible, which means the more leads they get, right? The more leads they get, the more they can get jobs. And we also have a whole network of people giving us data about what's going on in the market. So it's just industry trends or? No, no, basically what we have is we have, we have people that go around different towns, different cities, and they take pictures of all the construction sites. So we know exactly what's the status of every project. We know what's going on. So and that will be expanding quite a bit. So you're actually proactively also doing yeah, 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 yeah. rather so than just only receiving. Exactly. It's, it's very also proactive. And what we're doing also next is actually making this a lot more automated. So we're actually looking at the process of starting to look at building uh, bots, crawlers that will go and crawl all the public databases, all the public sites and get the information and bring it back in. So our database will keep on growing massively. Uh, not just locally, though. Everywhere. Why? Because what happens, let's say you're a supplier of marble base in Turkey, right? So for you to get projects here, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to showcase what you've done in Turkey. Now, the way the system works is for that to happen, you've got to build up your profile. The more information you put in, the higher you rank and the more visible you get. However, for it to become something that people can search upon, you've got to ver- verify it. Verifying it means you get the approval from two other companies that worked on the same project to vouch for you. So you are building up your small, small nodes of companies in Turkey or in the UK or in the US or anywhere else that are all putting information to the system, which is then building this massive web of companies. And so construction, which you notice that it's a very global company, especially at the consultancy level and the supplier level, is the same companies operating in all countries. So our database is not just local anymore. It really is global. You had the social proof aspect in terms of you can't just claim you worked on a project. You actually require two other yeah. co-participants in the project to actually... I mean, the strength of every B2B database is the quality of its data, yeah. right? The moment your data becomes stale or becomes old or becomes too false, then, then you yeah. lose your visibility, right? You lose your reputation. And like my dad always told me, it takes you a lifetime to be reputation and one day to destroy it, right? So we basically spend a lot of time and a lot of money to make sure our data is correct. Today, actually, half the company is working with data to make sure the data is correct, to make sure the data is, is up to date. So that's the, more than half of our company today. So we'll transition to a bit about your funding journey. Sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. You went for Series A, about $4.5 million, and uh, the goal for that was for the regional scaling. And then exactly. you have ambitions for a further round, which is for the global scaling. If you can just go a bit through the process, because before that, you also mentioned you hadn't received funding prior to that, or was it bootstrapped? How did that come about? So the business, we've been in operation now for eight years. So it's all been self-funded up until about a year. So yeah, we self-funded it 
So when we launched it, we were profitable from day one. We we're making money. That was great. Uh, next couple of next few years up until now, it was all self-funded. So I was the one investing in the company. Of course, we were making money. We were basically getting customers, getting paid and everything else, but we weren't profitable. Things became a lot more difficult as the number of companies coming in became bigger, right? As you go in scale. So when you're a young company, the problem is getting customers in through the door, right? Now, once you have that, is how do you make sure customers are, are, are satisfied, are happy with the product? The problem we got is because of the massive growth of company that we got coming in, the team had to ramp up quite a bit. And so we had to hire a lot more people. Basically, we had to go in funding round. The, the problem that we had was that construction tech was not something that was hip, sexy, or by any means whatsoever. So even though you had the massive growth in numbers, VCs were like, yeah, unless you're blockchain, AI, I don't really care. Yeah. Um, so we ended up doing this for about a year. Uh, did all of their regular VC routes. None of them were, so they were all interested, but they were like, well, I don't understand why you have such a massive growth, but you don't have, you know, ramp up in sales. But like, but for me to get sales, I got to have sales guys. I got to have, you know, the people behind it, which is what I'm looking for the money for. And so that was, a, that took us a long time to, to, to address. We ended up basically being able to raise money. And so the, uh, the series A, we closed it off a few weeks ago uh, from, basically from angels, people that are in the industry that understand construction tech very well. Because because they've been they're, they're massive developers, and so they invest in their business. So they were angels. They're not, angels, not VCs. not VCs. And was it locally or regional? Uh, local. So a couple of uh, very high net worth individuals, big developers, understand construction very well, understand the the, the, the problems that there is. They saw it, they liked it, they pitched it, and then that was Series A. And there were probably clients who have experienced it, or their no, portfolio had the portfolio had. But it was funny because we were going to them with in meetings. And in all cases, they were like, we're showing them the thing and they were, the eyes would light up. And this is actually very cool. And so then we would go and show them the product database. And they're like, no way you have my products in your system. My products are, my projects are very confidential and no way you know about them. And so we would, we would look for them. And of course, they would be in there. Like, how do you have this information? This is nobody supposed to know about it. And so this is when they would start looking at us very seriously. Yeah. Because they, had, they, were, they were realizing that we had so much more information than anybody else had. That, so there was, there was something there. And so they, uh, they eventually came in. Uh, we closed our Series A a few, few weeks ago. And so now the whole pitch of Series A is um, that we want to capitalize on the leads that we already get. And so the pitch is that if you want to be part of the construction scene in the Middle East, you have to, be th- you have to come to us. Whether you're trying to get leads, you know, build products, build projects, or be tendering out. So that's the goal of Series A. It really focus on the regional aspect of it as a play. So we were talking to companies from all around the world, but that want to operate in the Middle East, that want to sell, that want to build, that want to work in the Middle East. Series A. Once we do that, and as we're doing that, our database is growing globally. So the next step is going to be to take that and make it much more global. You mentioned earlier that Turkey example. Once they've started feeding into the system, or let's say another global company in the US and Europe, once they've started feeding into the system because of their expansion here, it also works for you, vice versa, when you have more data to then approach that side. I mean, we have today over 18,000 companies on the system, and it's growing by over 1,000 a month. Again, with no marketing whatsoever and nothing at all. So our database is growing exponentially everywhere. And so that gives us a great way into understanding what the dynamics are, who's working with who, who's not working with who, and what, where are the projects. So that becomes a great way for us to start expanding into different different countries also. And how long did that fundraising process take? You said the Series A. It wasn't typical. You went to angels at the end. VCs yeah. didn't really come on board. How long did it take, let's say, from the start when you started thinking about doing the fundraising? Was it a year? Uh, no, there... it took us a good two years. Two years? It took, it took us a good two years, yeah. 
And at first you were going down the traditional, you thought VCs might be the round. So we made all the mistakes in the book. So we ended up going first to local VCs, didn't work out. Um, we ended up, I ended up trying uh, to go to external VCs in the US, in Europe, in China. And they all loved it. But unless we were based there, they weren't really looking at us. So we spent a lot of time trying that route. Um, and then we came back here because there was a lot more activity going on here. So we gained another round of local VCs here, same as before. And so really, this is when we focused a lot more on the angels, typically people that are a lot more difficult to reach, uh, very private, which is why we haven't announced around because we can't really announce who it is behind. Um, and so, yeah, so this is really where we, 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 we got lucky. Like you said, the angels, it might be a private connection. Someone introduced you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly what it is. It's typically yeah, through, through very trusted connections that we made the, the introductions. And then that's how they happened. You said you made some mistakes and you explained some. made every mistake in the book. Is there any specific ones that come to mind that might be useful for other would-be entrepreneurs listening to maybe consider not to make that mistake or at least try and learn from I think every situation is different and mistakes will happen whatever you do. Um, so our first biggest mistake, actually my first biggest mistake is we started at three founders initially. Uh, so the guy that started the, the development and then somebody else that came in to run the company. Um, and what happened then is that one left because he got married, one left because he got divorced, so I ended up being by myself. Yeah, I've been solo for six years now. And so that slowed down things a lot, right? Because you can't do everything. Yeah? At the same time, you can't necessarily hire a lot of people that are A players because you don't have the money for it, right? And being based in Abu Dhabi was also a, a factor which slowed us down because it's not the most entrepreneurial city in the, in, in the country. So focusing on finding people that are much more stable than the ones that I found. Stable not in a sense mentally, it's stable in a sense of lifestyle, right? They're based here, they work here, they're happy to be here, and they, they're going to be here for a while. My, my, my founders came from somewhere else, and that didn't work out. So making sure you have a, a good set of co-founders is critical, and that would have saved us a lot of time and effort. The second thing was trying to, again, like I was saying before, trying to do, um, to build the product too much was also a mistake. Um, trying to um, rebuilding it because that was going to save us time in the long run was a bad mistake. So we can actually write a whole history, a whole book about what not to do. Fundamentally, it's about fund finding people to go around you that can support you and help you make decisions. So mentors, advisors, other co-founders that can really build up a network. So again, because I was in Abu Dhabi, it wasn't always that find, easy to find there. And again, construction tech was something that people were interested in. So it wasn't that easy to find. But yeah, so this is, which is why I made, a lot, I made a lot of mistakes, which is why things went slower. Uh, so we want to transition now to about you, a bit more about, let's say, your personal habits or sure. your leadership habits. Sure. Being a solo founder, or at least solo founder for the last six years, it must have been draining. Is there anything specifically you like to do on the weekends to maybe re recharge your batteries? Is there any way you de-stress? Yeah, so for me, de-stress has always been about sports. I mean, my, my passion has always, always been sports uh, since I was a kid. So, I mean, I like to try new things every couple of years. Uh, right now, I'm doing CrossFit quite a bit. So every day, go back. I mean, as, every as, day. As much as I can, I do CrossFit an, an hour. Before it was marathons. Before that, it was triathlon. Before that, it was weights. So whatever it is, just typically take an hour and recharge. Um, that, for me, is really where my mind just switches off and completely forgets about work. Uh, I also have a kid now. I have a three, three and a half year old kid. So typically weekends are off work and typically is going to be really spending time with the, with my family, beach, boat, uh, pool, whatever else it is. Yeah. 
but but my real disconnecting time is really when I'm doing sports. Is that a morning or a night habit? No, it's a night habit. I've tried the morning. It's horrible because you don't have the energy. You don't have the frustrations to come out to, to, <laughs> the to let go. So, yeah, no. So I typically do my gym at night. I tried the whole boot camp thing in the morning. It lasted yeah. a month and I was I was dead. I couldn't, I couldn't function. Actually, when I started drinking coffee because I hate coffee. I hate the taste of coffee. But when I started doing boot camp in the morning, it was like we were up at five in the morning. And so by four, I was completely sleepy. I couldn't work anymore. So it's when coffee addiction started. So you said you've had three today? I've, so this four. is my fourth one, yeah. Fourth one. <laughs> in terms of when you got going, when you started working at Pro Tenders, or even just earlier in life, were there any role models or heroes you looked up to in terms of either their habits, in terms of what they've done? I mean, honestly, I'd love to say yes, but the answer is no. I mean, I think one of the few people that still impresses me up to this day is my dad. I guess it's a pretty common answer, but it's just because the amount of things he was able to do and the amount of time he was there, it was just amazing. I mean, now we're four four boys and we can still do half of what he used to do at the end of his life. Yeah, so, I mean, just impressive. But otherwise, in terms of heroes, not really. I mean, I like to read a lot, not books. And that's one of your questions, but I don't, I don't read books. I don't have time. But I listen to a lot of podcasts and I read a lot on, on different, different blogs and everything else. So you try and take inspiration from things people have done, but I don't really have a like a hero well i would say your dad is the hero i mean he is the hero but it's more about the uh, the the work ethics he had my parents coming from a very old school family where it's about all about reputation right and just a very lebanese way of thinking but reputation is everything right so he always taught us about hard working hard being honest and being straight are there any work habits you tend to do every day is there anything that you think is unique to you uh, work 24-7 <laughs> sorry 23-7 no no what I would say is that uh, so one of the things that I do in the morning right away is I guess like most people is I get my phone but then I'll delete all of the emails that I don't think are important so I, whatever is not critical to my day I'll just delete it um, and so what happens is I typically try and so I wake up I typically look at my phone I have over 150 emails at 150 emails I'll be left with maybe a 50 that I actually have to look at and every night, I typically I try and have zero emails in my inbox. Everything has to be answered. Um, so that's so yeah, that's one of the things that I do in the morning. And then I read a lot. I mean, again, I read on blogs. But I spend typically an hour, an hour and a half in bed, just catching up on news. I, 